This is Footy Time with Daniel Andrews. And once again, I'm joined on the other line by Johnny Rath. How's it going, Johnny? Whew, what a weekend. What a weekend. Um, massive upsets, obviously. Uh, some, some great games and some weekends ruined. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, losing doesn't get any easier, does it? Even when you've won nine in a row, so... No, in fact, it gets worse. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, a lifetime of being a Melbourne supporter, I think, has prepared us for the feeling of being let down for your t- by your team. <laughs> That's something, yes. <laughs> what caught your eye? What caught my eye? Well, there's a few things that caught my eye this round, um, mostly sort of individual performances. But I, I have to go with Quinton Narkel this round uh, against Gold Coast for Geelong. Um, 34 possessions, 20 contested. 76% efficiency. He's got a, a nice fend-off as well, a bit like Dusty. Um, it's nice to see him sort of finally arrive and give the Cats another option through the middle. He's pretty strong, isn't he? He's pretty... Yeah, uh, yeah he's doesn't, robust. Doesn't really get pushed off the ball too easily. And Yeah, I've always wondered why he hasn't been getting more of a regular game. I guess it's not that easy to hold your spot in the Cats lineup, but yeah, hopefully it's heading in the right direction for him. Sounds like been, it is. He's been playing well. Yeah, for me, it was just the fact that the Tigers are out of the eight. <laughs> so <laughs> perhaps in the uh, customary spot of ninth. But yeah, it was more about the Giants, I suppose, that took their place. So they had a great win on Sunday against the Eagles at home. And they did it without Toby Green as well. So that uh, midfield is still humming. And uh, I think they've got a perfect record so far when Mumford's been playing. So I think they're five from five now. So... It's definitely something to look for on the team sheet for the tipsters with the GWS Giants where the Mumford's playing. They really ground out that uh, that win, the Giants. Uh, it was very workmanlike. The guys like Hopper, Ward, uh, and Tom Green, who's you know, he's just going to be a star, I think. It was a very sort of uh, just blue-collar performance, and yeah, they got, they got the win in the end. So I guess a lot of people after last week were saying, you know, the final eight is set, and... Nothing's really going to change, and I guess that last position in the eight, or even the last couple of positions in the eight, still look, you know, pretty open. And you would expect that. It's only what round we're going to round eleven now next yeah. week, and there's the chasing pack there with Frio uh, mainly, and I guess so. It's probably like teams like Sydney, Richmond, GWS, and Frio sort of duking it out in that, for that bottom part of the eight currently, anyway, but. Yeah, plenty of movement possible. There's still every chance for a team or two outside the eight to stake their claim. So, And as, as you said, there's a lot of footy to be played. So, yeah, it's silly to uh, call the eight set at this point. Yeah, I guess, you know, after a few upsets on the weekend, it's just opened right up again. So it was looking like there was a clear separation, but maybe not so. All right, let's uh, get into game of the round. So I guess part of doing a show like this is doing a game of the round when you don't necessarily want to relive it. And this will be <laughs> Adelaide versus Melbourne for us, obviously. A hard one for Melbourne supporters, but uh, yes, it's a really interesting game, actually. And there's a lot to actually get through. So let's jump into it, eh? Yeah, absolutely. So although Melbourne got the first goal, thanks to a snap from Langdon, it was actually Adelaide who got it straight back. And it was an interesting one as well with Phil Thorpe basically catching May's spoil and then snapping straight away. So Phil thought it was about half a metre away from where May spoiled it. So I guess it raises the question whether May did a good enough job with the spoil, but it was just a really weird 
way to get a goal, I guess. Yeah, it was. And it was a strange start to the game for me. It was a sign of things to come, it seemed. The the back line was a little bit jittery to start with, the thought. Uh, but, yeah, look, it was an opportunist goal. And, yeah, Adelaide were, were definitely going to bring the game to, to Melbourne. And the Crows had their second as well when they had a series of long handballs through the middle of the ground, ending with a long kick to Walker at the top of the square. So it was looking very different to a lot of Melbourne games. They were being split open, even in this, these early stages, and it was just hard for the defence to get set. Split open through the middle, uh, really good ball movement, and some of the uh, youngsters of the Crows' silky skills were on display. And, yeah, if you're getting the ball moving that quick through the middle, it doesn't really matter how good your back line is. It's going to be very hard to, to get set in your, in your structure. So it was actually Melbourne who came back with the next three goals to steady. And the highlight was uh, a clear centre clearance from Melbourne that ended with Rivers accepting the ball at high speed and draining it from about 50. Oh, it's a nice kick. Nice kick. But up the other end, from a stoppage deep inside 50 with only a couple of minutes left, it was Gorn who went up largely uncontested and brought the ball down looking for Oliver, but it was actually Rowe who was on the move and got the ball in the boot in a flash, and it was through the middle. And he had his second 30 seconds later as the Crows got another quick one after a centre clearance. So in a flash, Melbourne's lead had been cut to five points going into quarter time. It really set the tone for how the game was going to be played and how what was to come. I felt we'd won probably the first two or three centre clearances. Then... The Crows, getting two in a row from the middle, went bam inside 50 in goal. So it was it was very interesting. And, um, yeah, just it just we weren't used to seeing something like this from Melbourne this year. Yeah, you could really tell compared to other Melbourne games that they just weren't in control in anywhere near the same way. Like, even though the game was being played in this open style, as you sort of described, they were making uncharacteristic errors. They were giving up, uh, you know, really it, the ball in bad spots. And it was sort of it was a pattern that continued throughout throughout the night. Maybe they were just a bit off. And, you know, Gorn clearly palming it down to the Adelaide forward with with no pressure there. And there were, there were plenty of these moments throughout the night. Yes, it certainly was. All right, let's get going. So to begin the second quarter, it was a Petrarca masterclass on the wing. It started where he was pressuring the ball carrier to win it back for Melbourne, and then he got the releasing handball to two runners a little bit further out. He kept running, though, so it was him who was providing the option, rushing back towards the 50. And after he received 60 metres out, he was able to hit the kick across the body to Fritch at the top of the square, even though there was an Adelaide defender bearing down. Brilliant vision from track there. Uh, he had a split second to look up, and I didn't think he was looking that far ahead. I thought he was going to go the short option. And, yeah, it's just that that kind of stuff that separates the good players from the very good, just that split-second instinct. And, yeah, it was a great kick. Yeah, if you wanted to show one passage of play as to why Christian Petrarca is, you know, one of the best midfielders in the competition, you just show this. The pressure, Absolutely. the ability to hit the kick when he needs to, and just the vision. So it was all there. Yeah, the sequence, yeah. 
Going back the other way, though, after a series of handballs from about 70 out, Adelaide content just to control the ball. McKay found it on the ground, and from about 40 out, got the snap on line to close the gap to just four points. So Adelaide were definitely doing well to hang around in the second year. We were really struggling with um, with Adelaide's quick, quicker, smaller forwards. Um, Rowe, as you mentioned before, um, not sure if McKay's a small forward, but uh, just when the ball was hitting the deck, I just thought we were really, really struggling with that and speed around the contest. Yeah, it looked like a definite plan from Adelaide, didn't it? They were yeah. content just to take the game on at all costs, play on. Yep, take risks. Take risks. They, they were going through the middle more than any team I've seen against Melbourne this season, for yep. sure. So yep, totally agree. There's definitely a plan there. And you'd have to say it worked. Yes, yes, it certainly did. And I hate to say it, but it was also good to watch. <laughs> <laughs> it was a really good game, actually, even yeah. though there were quite a few mistakes that will be critical of Melbourne for. It was a, it was actually a great spectacle. Yep. So Melbourne got it up the other end, and from a 4-50 stoppage, Oliver received, and he's definitely not a noted goal kicker, but he threw it on the boot, it went right, it went left, and finally found its way through the goals. <laughs> I think he was as surprised as anyone when this one went through. <laughs> Yes, yes, but it was a very, very good, a very good effort. That was on. Was that? Um, yeah, no, no. I was thinking of. I was thinking of the second one. But uh, yeah, it was a no, great kick. That one. I think before that kick, he was one goal eight going into that. So definitely not a noted goal kicker. But uh, no, no, probably no, better not. from general play. And one thing that if he got that into his game a little bit more, if he sort of averaged a goal or two a game, he would be right up at the top in the conversation for best midfielders. Absolutely. So it was actually Thilthorpe who got his second crumbing goal. He's not a small forward. He's, what, almost 200 centimetres, I think. Yes. <laughs> but uh, off the hands of uh, Gorn, who uncharacteristically dropped more or less uncontested mark. I guess it wasn't quite uncontested. Thilthorpe was there, but he definitely had the better position. Off hands, and Thilthorpe gathered, and then Adelaide was just one point down. So I've noticed this in the last couple of weeks in particular. Gorn isn't taking that many of these marks going back with the flight. There was a period there, like last year and early this year, where he was taking every single one of these, and it's just yeah. standing out like a sore thumb when he's dropping these. A hundred percent. And um, I've watching Max in the last couple of weeks. I think he just he doesn't look quite as focused as he usually is. I don't know what it is. He's just. He's not 100% there. I mean, he's still giving a good effort and he's still serviceable. But, yeah, there's, there's just something missing with his game at the moment. And and I totally agree. He dropped some pretty routine marks. Took a couple of very good ones as well. But, yeah, you're right. Start of the season, he was clunking absolutely everything. So this is a bit of a sign of things to come as well because under huge pressure, James Jordan was defending in a pack at around 50 metres out from Adelaide's goal. And... He just tried to clear clear it out of the congestion, and it's a really dangerous spot to do this. So he basically just released the ball to no one, and Adelaide cleaned up very easily here. He's snapping the goal, and uh, it was actually an Adelaide lead at this point. So this happens... I think it happens plenty to other teams as well, but it, it's, it's almost like a professional free kick to actually just hold it in at this point. There's another one later in the game with Neil Bullen where Melbourne are up a fair bit at that point. And it's almost 
if if you're really thinking about it, it would be the professional free kick basically just to hold it in and let your defense get set. By actually releasing it in such a dangerous position, you're giving the other team such a good chance to score. I think there was an example of Hibbard doing exactly what you said and giving away the professional free kick really late, allowing us to get back. I, I think I'm fairly yeah, sure. No, yeah, I do remember yeah. that as well. And he was like actually... Um, yelling at people to get back as yeah, he was like holding the guy up on the mark. Perfect example of, of doing that right. But I, I do remember this. I mean, it, there are moments where if you're going to keep pinging the ball around, it's in a, such a dangerous spot. It's, yeah, it's not playing the percentages. It's, it's stacking the odds against you. Like, he would have definitely got done holding the ball. But at, in that spot, that's actually a far better result for the team than actually just releasing it into space. I mean, it's not worse. Well, it's definitely not worse. Yeah. <laughs> like you're basically giving up a shot at goal by releasing it there, so that yeah. was very dangerous. Yeah. Um, okay. What? Where are we? Got on a little bit of a rant there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Melbourne managed to peg it back, and at halftime, it was actually eight four fifty two apiece. So high scoring, high octane footy. Melbourne was sort of controlling the ball a bit more than Adelaide, but Adelaide were just going and going when they had the chance using a lot of handball, a lot of short kicks. But yeah, they were just picking Melbourne apart really, which is something we've sort of said in previous weeks. It probably is a good way to play them because they do work so well back. If you can just hit these shorter kicks and control the ball against Melbourne, it's probably a better way to actually play them. Um, I also thought the Crows were forcing Melbourne into a lot of scruffy hack kicks out of the back line, in the half-back line. Um, we were really missing Christian Salem. That was a huge out before the bounce. And um, bringing Jeter in, look, he's got experience, but I wasn't that confident uh, because Salem really does make this back line work in terms of playing it out from the back. We, yeah. we do sort of we throw it out to him and he kind of does the rest. Uh it changed the shape of the back line, I thought. And um, Salem's result, just we... so good at repelling, isn't it? Like, isn't he? Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. There were plenty of times where, you know, Adelaide was getting sort of a kick to around that sort of 60, 70 region. And for whatever reason, Melbourne just weren't able to win the ball back. And I think Salem's really good in those spots. He'll put his body in the right position. He'll, um, he'll just be where he needs to be to impact the contest. And I think we were definitely missing him. And he's probably one of the most important members of that back line. He'll, he'll also find that relieving kick as well. It may not be a, a brilliant kick or anything, but he'll he'll calm it down and find that nice 20-metre target and just allow us to get a mark and, you know, reset. He's almost like uh, Melbourne's yeah. version of Lostin, although he probably doesn't take as many intercept marks, but he's sort of... Very similar, though. That sort of... Like the calming influence. ...type role. yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. So what's happening in uh, the third quarter here? So we've actually got Adelaide starting to get the run of play going, and they actually managed to build a 10-point lead by halfway through the third. And as you can imagine, the home crowd are really getting into it at this point. Chance to knock off the top of the ladder Ds. So Melbourne got a bit of play going back the other way when Jackson marks strongly on the wing. And he managed to get it on pretty quickly as well. And Petrarca was able to draw a holding free kick right on the 50. And as we've talked about in previous episodes, Petrarca's set shot goal kicking isn't great, but he steadied himself and from about 52 metres out, got onto the kick and uh, gave Melbourne one they desperately needed here. 
That was a big goal. underrated moment in the match, actually. I think um, Adelaide were getting a bit of a run on, and we were starting to be sort of second to every ball and that for a, for a stretch there. But when Track got that that free kick, um, yeah, yeah, as we said, he's not a brilliant set shot for goal, but his ability to nail these in really key moments is yeah. definitely something that it, it makes him. He might not might be an average set shot, but it it. it puts him up just a little bit in my eyes in terms of who you want to take that set shot. I mean, he, he can kill, kick him when they count. He does seem to steal himself for these moments for whatever reason. Remember yeah. he kicked some big clutch goals in that game against St Kilda last year yep. where it was kind of track or nothing in that game. But yep. uh, yeah, he can definitely nail it from 50 when he needs to, which is no, good. He likes the big stage. Good to see. I guess the other thing I wanted to mention here was how good a contest Jackson was giving at around that sort of half-forward wing role. He was launching really well, taking quite a few marks, and he yep. always looks to get it on really quickly. So, like, he looked like Melbourne's best tall forward in this game. I know he didn't, like, I don't think he had a shot for goal, but just his work rate and yeah. what he was doing setting up other guys. So, yeah, he was he was a standout. He plays in fast motion, and for a big guy, that's like a... A pretty big compliment. I mean, I don't know where he gets all his energy from, but he's just scrapping first, second, third, fourth efforts. Like he just doesn't run out of energy. And yeah, he was very, very good to have back, and really a reason why we had a chance in this match. Absolutely. So after winning a contest on the wing, Clayton Oliver drove it long forward, and it was Jackson putting up a great contest at around the fifty. With the ball in dispute, Pickett came into frame. And Hutto and commentary had a great line, so I'll try and repeat it here. <laughs> Haven't seen a lot from Pickett. You've seen him now. You've seen him now. <laughs> so as he dashes in from the boundary line, I don't know, I think it was Luke Brown who was chasing him. He had absolutely no chance of catching him. Hit the accelerator button. He was pretty much right on the boundary. Took his 15 metres, and by the time he kicked it, he was basically kicking it from the goal line. That was yeah. <laughs> how far he ran in. Yeah, and this is just a classic example of a player that you can't let off the leash for one second. I think he was held very well for most of the game. He didn't do a lot, but, you know, one moment of magic and it was a crucial goal for the Ds. I think it got us back in front. It was just crazy how, as I described it there, he almost just sort of seemed to appear out of nowhere. Like, he wasn't even in the frame when the, the ball was in congestion there. He just sort of seemed to float or, like, yeah, he just seemed to appear and then speed mm. out of that contest. <laughs> Almost as if he'd run off the interchange bench. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Jackson in that moment was absolutely sensational. Yeah, he never gets outmarked, does he? Which is a no. great trait to have. So again, it was Oliver influencing the contest as he marks strongly, about 30 metres out on a 45-degree angle, and not wanting to trust his set shot. He snapped straight away, and it went straight through the middle. So I would probably say that for Oliver, this is a good approach going on the snap from around this region. I wasn't sure what happened there. At first, I thought that. I thought he played on straight away. But then afterwards, I thought that maybe they'd called play on. Um, but I don't know if that was the case. But yeah, it's no, one of those... I, I, maybe, maybe you're right. I'd have to look back. But... Uh, it looked it like, not to me, that. he made a conscious decision just to go as quick as possible. Like, oh, wouldn't be surprised. His, his set shots on, on the drop punt aren't any good. So not brilliant. I 
even if he had gone back, I would have been telling him to actually line up as, as a snap. Or you know, he was, yeah, you could run around or just line it up as a snap from there. But oh, just, know, he, yeah, exactly. Yeah. He did the right thing. He got it on quick. He and did. Kicks another goal. And in that kind of form, you trust your instincts. So that gave Melbourne a narrow three-quarter time lead. So as you can hear from this rundown, there's highlights all over the place. There's so much happening in this game. Melbourne are just doing whatever they can to keep up with Adelaide and Adelaide's just using the middle every chance they get. Lots of handballs, just getting it on as quick as they can. So it's a great game to watch. It was a it was final standard football, I reckon. Um, you know, Adelaide, you wouldn't expect to be making the eight this year, but they looked like a genuine finals team on Saturday. Uh, yeah, absolute spectacular game. When I was first thinking about doing this rundown, I thought maybe just jump straight to the last quarter because so much, so much yeah. happened in the last quarter. But I guess that wouldn't have been doing justice to uh, those first three quarters. There's plenty of great stuff there as well. Yeah. So it was goal for goal early in this last quarter, and when Langdon managed to snap a goal from a stoppage, it was Melbourne who had a ten point lead. And again in the middle, it was Petrarca who was the extractor. And uh, got the ball to about centre-half forward, where it was in dispute. Oliver flashing through. Somehow it just bounced up to him, and with with an outstretched hands, he accepted it. And going for goal, it looked like he went for goal. He could have been trying to centre it, but going for goal, he cleared the players 20 metres out. And in a flash, Melbourne had a 16-point lead with just eight minutes left. It... Looked like that happened every single time Oliver got near the ball. It looked like it was always just bouncing perfectly up to him, like he had it on a string. It was just phenomenal to watch. It was crazy. It was just so strange because you there were like four or five other guys like around the contest. It was the ball just kept bubbling around, and then as soon as Oliver got there, it just it was the perfect bounce up to his left hand. Yeah, it was just amazing. <laughs> All right, so. In a bit of a worrying sign for Melbourne, they'd left a heap of space inside 50 when Adelaide had a kick from about 60 metres out. Suffice to say, they used that space to hit up Tex Walker, who accepted on the lead, marking strongly in front of May. And from there, he easily snapped the goal, and the lead was now just 10 points. Crucial moment of the fourth quarter for me, this one, uh, because just before that, I think this was with 15 minutes left in the quarter, uh, Oliver again, it gathered beautifully from halfback. He charged through away from the contest. Um, I think he tried to take a bounce and the bounce wasn't great and it sort of got away from him, bounced on the ground and he ended up picking it up again and shooting out a handball to Track, who was off for all money but dropped it. And then I think uh, Neil Bullen picked it up and got caught in a tackle, couldn't release it back to Track. The, the Ds were off to the races there and it turned around Walker got it that was a two goal turnaround for me that was another one of those ones that I was talking about where the professional thing to do would have been there for Neil Bull and just to hold yeah. it in yeah. I was thinking about that actually when you mentioned it before exactly yeah so at exactly. least you don't get the two goal turnaround straight away there could have just yeah. held it in but yeah, yeah. Um, what was happening there with Petrarca like he just lost handle of the ball there wasn't any pressure around him was there like what actually think... happened there I think it might have just been one of those things where he'd looked up ahead before even actually receiving the ball. and Yeah, it just didn't quite. That's just what happened, it. yeah. Um, maybe the bounce that Oliver took that didn't bounce properly, maybe that threw things off yeah. systematically throughout the team or something. I don't know. I'm just 
clutching at straws there, but uh, honestly, it was one of those heart-raising moments because Oliver just looked so good breaking through there and gathering that ball. I thought, oh, geez, we're going to be off here and we're going to, you know, canter away to a win here. Yeah. And in that split second, it just went, oh, no, we're not. Not yet. Yeah, if they turn that into a goal, the game's over. So I think so. I think so. There's yeah, so many fine those... margins what we're going to go through here, but there's one moment right there where Melbourne could have won it. I think it would have just, um, it would have psychologically damaged Adelaide, yeah. So another great bit of play for Adelaide, bringing it straight through the middle. They're able to spot up Fogarty. And he's actually a really good set shot, this guy. I don't think he misses oh, too often. A brilliant kick. And brilliant he, kick. he flushed this one. And at that point, it was just a four-point lead to Melbourne with only 4.5 minutes left. From memory, I think that bit of play might have actually started from a free kick. I don't know that. I, yeah, it could have actually, yeah. yeah. They real that was symptomatic of what Adelaide was doing. Even when they just got a free kick, you know, they'd go quickly as quick that'd as be. they could. So that's kind of what happened there. And Melbourne's defence was just not set up at all. There was so much space for Fogarty there. Oh yeah, yep. All right, so now we're down to the final two minutes where a lot of the action happens. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So it all started when Melbourne looked like they might be out going along the far wing. But it was actually Gorn who was caught dead in a tackle. And with just under two minutes left, it was time for Adelaide to try and find the game winner. So it was Murray who went long. And in a huge pack, Tex Walker claimed the mark, even though there was absolutely no chance that he'd marked it. He managed to fire the handball out. And after the ball bobbled around a little bit, the ball fell for keys and gathered and sort of ran away from the 50 to get a bit of space. And in doing so... He took exactly seven steps. Yes, I counted the steps. Yeah, <laughs> before finally, Before finally getting caught. Who was the tackle? Was it Petty? Uh, Petty, yes. Yeah. Before finally getting caught by Petty. He had it for a good couple of seconds before getting into a position where he could get a fist to the ball to release. And questionable handball too. Questionable handball. But uh, it actually went out to Sloan on this occasion who hacked it forward and it landed in Walker's arms. And we know what such a good shot Walker is. Stephen May beaten again. Yeah. I can't do much about those ones where it sort of just drops in front of them, can you? Not really. Not really. It is kind of fortuitous in the way that it dropped into Walker's hands. But, uh, look, he ends up completing the mark around his shoelaces and it's just, yeah, it was just a bad moment. So it's 40 seconds left after... Walker went back and slotted that set shot as everyone knew he would. Melbourne needed a response. Gorn got a great tap down and it was Petrarca surging it forward out of the middle. The ball went to ground and it was in dispute and it was actually Murray who found it on the ground. With no other Adelaide players around, he went straight for the boundary line where the ball just trickled over after a 10-metre handball right next to the point post. And... I think the only one who thought this way was the umpire. It was not deliberate, according to the umpire. The uh, The commentators on the coverage were going crazy, and yep. probably every single Melbourne supporter watching it was also. <laughs> yes, yes. So no free kick. There was still about 30 seconds left on the clock, and there was just a couple more stoppages. Melbourne couldn't really get a clear disposal, and that was the end of the game. Adelaide had won it by a point. 
96 to 95. Fantastic win. Take absolutely nothing away from the Crows. They played really well and they thoroughly deserved it. Uh, yeah, as we said before, fun game style to watch. They were taking the game on. They were really daring through the middle and they got the reward for it. So, yeah, not taking nothing away from the Crows there. Uh, totally deserved it. Uh, but we do have to highlight those those last few seconds of the game. Uh, as we mentioned, Petty's tackle on keys. Look, I think it was holding the ball. Uh, that was probably the cast iron non-call, I thought. Uh, and look, the deliberate bands. There's, there's a few layers to this, uh, I think. Uh, a lot of layers to it. So we all thought, obviously, that it was probably deliberate straight away. Um a day later, which is yesterday, we start to see some mysterious, never-seen-before footage come out that uh, the ball may have deflected off Charlie Spargo's hand. Uh, I'm not quite sure who raised the attention to this. I think it might have come from the Adelaide Big Footy Forum or something. Uh, but, yeah, look, we see another camera angle, which we, for some reason, can't see during the live broadcast. But, um, they look... I don't think it was that definitive, to be honest, but it did look like maybe it could have hit Spargo's hand. Uh, so, look, I yeah, I, I agree. Like That takes a little bit of the sting out of it for a Melbourne supporter. It does look like Spargo could have touched it, but even if that's the case, the, um, the position the umpire is in, there's absolutely no way he could have seen that. This is my point, Dan. This is exactly my point. Um, I think people have buried the lead on this completely. There was no indication whatsoever at the time that that's what happened. No umpire was saying it. No one in the commentary was saying it. There was no explanation of it. That is not what happened. The umpire completely stood behind their decision of, no, no, it's just out of bounds and it's a throw-in. Um, we start to hear these things the next day that it might have hit Spargo's hand and therefore it's the correct decision. Well, no, it's not the correct decision. Even if he did touch it, it's not the correct decision. They're just fortunate that it actually might have hit his hand and turned out to maybe be the correct decision. The umpire let's, didn't make yeah. that decision with the knowledge that it hit Spargo's yeah. hand. So yeah, let's not pretend that it's a brilliant call by the umpire or non-call. Like, yeah, it's uh, that's what's yeah doing my head in here. But even then, it was very hard to tell from that footage. It may have, it may not have. Uh, but this was much more about process than outcome. And I think in the heat of the moment, that's the directive. If it's, you know, going by the letter of the law, it should have been deliberate. Like, you don't really see a more... I know I'm probably a little biased here, but you don't actually see a more deliberate one than that. Like, the, no. the, the way they actually pay it now, there was no player anywhere near the line. He went straight for the line. He couldn't even put it through the points because that would have made it a draw. And it probably, if he'd yeah. done that, he was so far out that it actually would have been a free kick to Melbourne. But exactly, there was there was nothing else he was trying to do. Just went straight for the line, and because so he, it, because it's that time in the game, and because it's Adelaide, and because the umpire in that sec half second he couldn't bring himself to do it, he doesn't pay it. That's it's a simple and that's that for me. That's the thing, and and look, he's obviously deliberately trying to do something, <laughs> whether it's go through the point, even though it wouldn't have helped, or go to the line. I also find that, look, I'm not saying it's impossible, but, you know, that's right near the goal square. Can can a deflected handball of Charlie Spargo's hand really cannon out to the boundary that quickly? I, I don't know. Maybe it can. I'm not sure. I just think, it, it, you know, there's a few questions yeah. here. Um, but, look, 
Like the only way you're really going to know is if you ask the umpire and, you know, he might not even be honest about it. Like (laughs) if, if you know, you've made a decision, are you you really going to say that? Or would you just say, yeah, I saw it off Spargo. It's easy. It's the easy out. So, well, yeah, it's, it's, it's after the fact there, there's no point. There's not even any point in the AFL coming out and saying anything there, but, um, just looking at these two decisions, and I know that it sounds biased being a Melbourne fan, but really I'm not looking at it in that way. I actually don't like looking at umpiring as a, uh, the cause of, a, of an outcome in the game, but it, it, I just think about the aesthetics of the game. We watched this game, and pretty much all through the game, they were very hot on holding the ball. Like There were some real harsh ones, I thought, with barely any prior opportunity, getting caught, holding the ball. Fair enough, that's the way they were doing it. Max Gorn gets pinged on the wing, textbook holding the ball, brilliant tackle. And seconds later, Keyes gets pinged, I thought. I would have liked the consistency. They didn't pay it. It's really hard to explain this kind of stuff to newcomers to the game. To say, well, it's hard to explain the holding the ball rule in the first place. And then secondly, to say, oh, yeah, but it's not... No, no, it's late in the game. They're, they're just uh, they're letting it go a bit. I don't know any other sport in the world that does that. Like, there, there were so many free kicks paid in this game. It was ridiculous. I thought it was actually over-umpired. And then, yeah, so did I. So did I, actually, yeah. Yeah, it's just... Yeah, I don't know what's going on with the umpiring at the moment. We're going to talk a little bit about what's going on with holding the ball later in one of the topics we're going to bring up. But, like, I don't know. These things with the umpiring, it just seems to ebb and flow and in terms of, you know, how well it's working. But I think you'd struggle to find a football supporter at the moment to say that the the way the game is being umpired at the moment is serving the game well. It's just not. No, it's it's not. And it's not necessarily that there's bad decisions or anything all like that all the time. But it is it is the consistency. It's in interpretations. It's probably the way the rules are constructed that doesn't make it easy for them. It's probably the... It, the fact that they're not full-time probably plays a big part as well. There's, there's so many of these age-old questions, and we're just not going to get any answers anytime soon. All right, let's bring it back to some non-umpire chat, although it was good to get some of that <laughs> off our chest. Yeah, absolutely. We're done there. <laughs> so there's some really interesting stats looking at the stat sheet here. So after half-time, Adelaide actually kicked seven goals too, so incredibly accurate. And yep. A few of those were from free kicks as well, but just wanted to highlight that accuracy. Another big one for Adelaide was scores from turnover. 12 goals for 76. Considering Melbourne's only conceded 72 points as a maximum per game, this was crazy. They were just splitting them open on turnover, scoring really uh, quite easily when they were turning it over and using the clinical skills really so that really stood out and then if you look at on Melbourne's side of things it actually looks like they should have won I know like it's a very close one point game but they won the inside 50 count they won the clearances they won the center Mm. clearances they won the contested possession they won the marks inside 50 they won the tackles they won the tackles inside 50 it's just amazing that you can win so many important stats and actually not win the game it's a bit of a reminder of that uh, that Sydney and Geelong game a few weeks ago, where the stats were very heavily. Look, the stats that you'd think would matter were very heavily towards uh, the losing side. But Adelaide, one stat that they pretty much had from start to finish was the uncontested possessions. It was two twenty to one seventy five, and uh, eighty eight marks over seventy four. I thought they would their work rate to get to spread and get out wide and you know win those uncontested 
possessions out wide and things like that. It was very impressive. They really came to work and to play. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess it was their accuracy that probably got them home in the end, but as you described there, they had a great game plan to counteract what Melbourne was mm. trying to do. And I think we haven't really talked about it much, but Melbourne did have a lot of players who weren't getting to their normal output level. So although they did have guys like Oliver and Petrarca who were you know, extremely good and extremely influential, there were plenty of other guys who weren't quite putting out the same level as they, as they have in the first couple of months here. I totally agree, Dan. I thought there were a lot of passengers in this performance for Melbourne. Guys like, uh, well, like Jeddah, I think, almost at the end, and he'd come in for Christian Salem. Bailey Fritch was terrible. Uh, Hunt, I thought, looked like he was at the beach. Um, Spargo <laughs> was a little bit down. Spargo wasn't bad. He did some nice things, but he was a little bit down. Sam Wiedemann, disappointed. I thought this was his game to really stake his claim. Uh, Cozzy, James Jordan, just some players that have been really good so far this year that were not quite at their best. Stephen May was really down. Um, yeah, I thought if this was a, a good, like a, a top four team, I actually think would have been played off the park. I reckon we would have lost by about five goals at least. Yeah, maybe, maybe. So was this the loss that Melbourne needed to have then? If, if we're saying that what you just said there, there were so many guys down. Did we just need to kind of hit the reset switch a little bit? Well, yeah, I guess we're going to find out in the next few weeks. But uh, look, that that is one way of looking at it. Uh, and I've heard a lot of people say it, is that it is maybe the, the kick in the bum that we needed or the, the loss we needed to have. I, I, looking at our next few games, I can't help but think that it's a missed opportunity. I think to bank one more and maybe save the first loss for someone like the Bulldogs or, or Brisbane... That would have been more ideal, but uh, look, it could. I mean, really, when you think about it, nine wins and one loss by a point, it's pretty damn impressive, isn't it? I mean, like, it's not something that happens every day. Um, so, look, time will tell. So I think we alluded to this a little bit earlier, but have Adelaide actually uncovered a bit of a blueprint for how to beat Melbourne? What do you reckon, Johnny? Um, well, it's, it's hard to see how it wouldn't be a, a plan on how to beat one of the informed teams of the comp. Uh, just that quick ball movement through the middle and, and the skill, hitting the targets. Uh, yeah, just moving on quickly, really sort of catching us off guard a bit. Yeah, it, we looked very uncomfortable with it early on in that game and almost a bit spooked. And it was really hard to wrestle the game back into sort of a, a stoppage type contest. So... Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how the Bulldogs do it because they'll do it even better than Adelaide did it. So, yeah. Yeah, it'll definitely be a big test. I suppose one thing is that not every team can actually play like this, so you wouldn't think they can. So that'll probably stand Melbourne in good stead. But I think they are definitely vulnerable to this kind of attack and uh, obviously it leaked a lot of points uh, compared to what they normally do. But as we went through in that rundown, there were a lot of sort of fundamental errors which did give up goals as well. So I suppose it's probably a bit of a mixture of Melbourne being a bit off and Adelaide just having a really good game style to actually combat what they were trying to do. Absolutely. All right, and last one before we move on. I know we've spent quite a while on this, but it's been really interesting. So what does this match tell us about Melbourne as a legitimate contender? 
Um, well, off the bat, you would think that a legitimate contender would win these types of matches. Um, that's the simplistic view. Uh, but on the other side of the coin, there are many teams that have played top four, not, you know, made top four in the last few years that have had the odd loss to a team that's, I guess, around the bottom four, the bottom six. Um, but yeah, look, it's a, it's a reality check. It's a reality check. It really depends what happens in the next few weeks. I think it's it's not so much the loss in isolation to Adelaide. It's it's definitely how they respond from this. I think. Yeah, you're going to lose at some point, but I think it, we'll know a lot more about Melbourne after the next two weeks against the Bulldogs in Brisbane. And I don't think they necessarily have to win both of those no. to prove that they are a legitimate contender. But if they go into those games and don't, you know, show that they are, you know, this hardened team that is actually going to be up for the fight, then there's going to be plenty of questions asked. Yep, yep, certainly. All right, let's jump into some other topics now. So uh, Brisbane have been looking great, and we've given them a given them a few mentions over the weeks, but I think it's really going to take some sort of team to stop them at home. They won every game at home last year except for that prelim final, and they're just looking pretty ominous at the moment. Obviously, pretty comfortable win over the Tigers up at the Gabba in the end. So, yeah, they're looking really strong. Yeah, and the spread of goal kickers in that team is really what impresses me. They're never relying on one guy. Uh, yeah, it, Cameron will bob up, Danaher, Hipwood was fantastic. Uh, and they get some good goals from the midfield. Uh, I guess, yeah, but there is one one question I have actually for you, Dan, and it's a little bit unrelated, but is there a chance of back-to-back Brisbane Brownlees this year? Possibly. I'm guessing you're hinting at Hume Cluggage there. I certainly am. Well, he definitely seems to have taken his game to another level. And, uh, yeah, I guess there probably wouldn't be a huge number of guys stealing votes off him, especially with Neil out at the moment. So That's right. Be racking him up with all these wins. What are they? They're on a six-game winning streak yes. now, I think. Yes, um, that's right. And back to you, your original question. Yeah, look, uh, it's just a really good spread when it comes to the goal scorers. Backlines, you know... Strong when it you know when it has to when it form, like Harris Andrews is always there when he needs to be, uh, yeah, just a really good spread, and yeah, they're gonna be very hard to beat. Yeah, they get plenty of good drive out of Daniel Rich there, yeah. and uh, they seem just pretty well settled all over the ground, really. Absolutely. So we alluded to this earlier as well, but let's have a bit of a deeper look at holding the ball. So there's been a lot of talk about this over the last couple of weeks in particular in terms of how many holding the balls are being paid, uh, what should constitute holding the ball, all these types of things. So I guess the question I have is, is the ball player being given too much latitude with this current interpretation? Yeah, it's, it's hard because not all of these decisions are, are equal. But um, I think lately, yes. I think you see way too many full-on through 60 revolutions in a tackle and uh, not a sufficient disposal attempt. And, and yeah, it's, it, it's, a, it's a tough one. But the, the prior opportunity one's the one that I think is confusing a lot of people as well. 
uh, is, you know, it's coming back to just because there's a great tackle and there's no prior opportunity doesn't mean that it has to be rewarded every time. Well, that's how I sort of always thought the rule was. Like, if it's a great tackle and it's pinned to you and you can't really do anything with it, then I would have thought that was just a ball up. I'm just, we're not seeing as many of those lately either. So, yeah, it's a bit of an all-over-the-place answer. But, yeah, I think generally there's a little bit too much leeway given to the ball carrier at the moment. Well, I remember this is going back a long way, that if you did get slung 360 degrees and you hadn't got rid of it, it was holding the ball straight away. Yeah. So it's funny how things change over the years. But, you know, if there were some clear directives that, you know, this is what you can and can't do, maybe that would help, whether it be like a certain revolution, a certain number of steps. But at the moment, it sort of seems like guys can release the ball however they want, almost like it's equivalent to when they're on the ground. You know, they just nudge it out. Yeah. I guess that's okay because they're kind of on the ground. They don't necessarily have to handball it, but... You've almost got guys just releasing the ball even when they're standing up and they're not being pinned for it. So the the one that I remember, but this happens happened countless times over the weekend, but there was one in the Adelaide-Melbourne game. It was right in the centre. I'm not sure who the Adelaide player was. He was in a really good tackle, and all he did was release it sort of upwards with his sort of left arm, nothing mm. more, just let it come out. And he obviously hadn't disposed of it, but because the Melbourne player held on to him, he was tackling him, then he got done for holding the man. So yes. he basically threw the ball away and he then he gets rewarded for it. Yeah. The, the incorrect disposal thing, yeah, that's way too inconsistent. I think sometimes we're seeing the trigger-happy umpires are holding, they're calling holding the ball before there's even been an attempt to dispose of it. And quite often I find lately... A player will get the boot to ball, but they've already blown the whistle, and it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's just it's a bit erratic. And then there's those other times where, yeah, there's just silly disposal, and it's, it's seen as a, you know, perfectly good disposal. I, I, I miss the days when it was just clear kick or handball, and that's it. You know, if your arm's pinned to you, that's a good tackle. Bad luck. I mean, track was actually pinged for one of those as well on the weekend. So. I think that's the one yeah. that could be a bit tighter on, though. Like, if, you, if you're not getting the handball and it's not being knocked out in the tackle, then it should be holding the ball every time. Every time, yeah. So, like, when a guy is static like that, like the one I'm describing, it's not getting knocked out in the tackle. The, the ball player who has the ball is trying to get it out, and it, they're basically just releasing the ball without disposing of it. So that should be a really easy call for the umpire. That should, yeah, the one you're talking about, that should definitely be holding the ball before any consideration of whatever the thing, he, was it high? or oh, no, holding the man, yeah. Before yeah. any of that happened, that should have been holding the ball every day of the week. Even if there hasn't been pro opportunity because yeah. you're just releasing the ball. It's incorrect you disposal. You can't do that. Yeah. yeah. It's All like right. it's like in the schoolyard when you used to get tackled and you used to put the ball on the ground. And you're like, oh, I haven't got it, I haven't got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's a bit crazy at the moment. Like there doesn't seem to be any directive from the AFL to change this. I saw they did get a new head of umpiring, but it's just so weird how you know you've got this same rule that over the years just gets morphed into these different interpretations. Yeah. And I guess they're trying to fit it at the moment with the fact that you know the game is fast paced, they just want it to get out into space. But it's a huge disadvantage. Some of these where 
you basically just have one team releasing it from a position where they should be getting penalized and then the other team is basically out because of it. It's yeah. It's not it just doesn't seem right. You're not rewarding the tackler for laying a decent tackle. Exactly, and that's what it should come back to. All right. So, I think another thing that stood out to me on the weekend was just the fact that no win in the AFL should be taken for granted. So, you know, when you can get on a decent winning streak, as we've seen with Melbourne and Brisbane so far this year, but an upset's never too far away in the AFL. You can see that over the weekend with Adelaide beating Melbourne, Frio getting the better of Sydney over in WA, Giants beating West Coast, who would have been outsiders of that game, and Collingwood almost did it to board mm. at the MCG as well. So there's yep. definitely no sure thing in footy, and, you know, it is easy to start thinking that your team should win by a lot if you're playing against a you know weaker opponent, according to the ladder, but it's never quite as simple. There's so many things that can happen in a game of football, and there really isn't that much difference between the best and worst teams. No, there isn't, and it, as we've said before, if you're at 5% off your game, you know, you could be in for a bit of a, a rude awakening. Uh, but yeah, it is a level competition, really, and... If a team comes and brings the pressure and, and runs hard, they're willing to work, they're going to be in more games than they're not in. And even if they're losing, they're not going to lose by much. So, yeah, every week's a danger game. Every week's a danger game for every, any team. Yeah, I guess going back to something we were talking about earlier, we were talking about how the top eight was looking kind of set. But after this weekend's action, it's just completely opened it up again with yeah. some of those upsets. So... There's if there's a, there's only one sure thing in football, and that's that there's never a sure thing. Yeah, yep. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, let's uh, finish off today with a bit of true or false. So we've got a couple to have a look at here. So the way the game is currently being umpired is serving the game well. True or false, Johnny? Uh no, I think that's that's uh, false. That is false. Um, I don't. I don't think it's necessarily being umpired badly, uh, although there's been some some bad calls. I think from a holistic view, the way the rules have been set up, the way that uh, the directives are given, the agendas, this is what we're going to do this week, this is what we're going to do that week. Oh, we need to start paying more uh, 15 metre kicks marks. Oh, we need to start doing holding, you know, holding the ball. Like, it really bothers me just how much the rules committee or whatever, or the umpires, whoever is in charge of this week to week, it just bothers me how much they're swayed by the public opinion and especially the opinion of the coaches. Like that's something that's just really bothering me at the moment. And as a result, I don't think they really have as much power as they think they do. I don't think, you know, you look at sports around the world. I look at, you know, soccer and I look at rugby union and the refs in those sports are really, they're highly respected. And, you know, it's the decision, what they decide, that's it. And, I don't think I don't see that when I see AFL umpires. I just I see just a little bit of a laughing stock occasionally when it comes to this. I mean, there's very. Why good do you think that is though? Yeah. Do you think that's because there's so much grey area, or because yeah. we're just not taking hard enough stances on the way some of these rules should actually be implemented, and just having some hard and fast rules? Like, 
what what's actually causing yeah. it? Yeah, look, I think there's too much grey area, and there always has been. There's, there's a lot of open to interpretation, and unfortunately, we're not really doing much to to bring that in a lot, a, a bit. Like, we start saying things like, "Oh, we, we're going to do more of the deliberate events, and we're going to do more of these." Uh, you know, holding the balls if it's like this and then if it's like that or but if they decide that it's like this, you know, it. I'd like to see... It's always going to be a game open to interpretation when it comes to officiating, but I'd like to see some more black and white. I'd like to see just some things that are just going to eliminate the the doubt. It would, it would be nice, like, either at the start of the year or whenever, if they actually, you know, came out and said, this is what we're going to be doing and actually stick to it for a whole year. I know yeah. they, they've kind of done that in the past, but I think they do very quickly go away from whatever they say yeah. they're going to do. So, like, what's the point? You find that after like about four or five weeks, whatever they were saying at the start of the year, it's, it's almost irrelevant. I guess part of that is, you know, they feel like they need to adjust to the way the game's being played and that, that seems to change over the weeks as well. So is it just one of those things that... Because the game is changing and always, you know, evolving, that the umpiring does have to actually go along with it. Yeah, I guess it, there is there is some truth to that, um, and I just think it it would be better if it was built from the ground up a bit a bit smarter. You know, we we, we get these rules in place, we back our umpires. I feel like we've created a narrative now where. It's it's easy for us now to have a shot at the umpire. Like I just did a few moments ago, I called him a laughing stock, and that's probably not entirely true. But yeah, it's I don't know. It's it's a real tough one. It's a real tough one. Um, yeah. It does seem like the AFL could be doing more to actually help the umpires in terms of just making their job a bit easier. And I don't know. It, it just seems like it's in the too hard basket and they are just happy enough for it to bubble along and not really do too much about it. It does seem in the too hard basket. That's for sure. Um, it, it's yeah. And yeah, I don't know how you do it when umpires are part time, like, but something I kind of think about with the, we, we want our players to stand up in the big moments. We want, we love it when, you know, there's that act of brilliance by a Dusty Martin or a Christian Petrarca in the, in the, you know, the real thick of the action. It would be great if we could prepare our umpires to be doing the same thing, make that decision in a big moment and, you know, not freeze up like it seemed to happen in a, <laughs> that game on the weekend. But I just, it'd be nice if, if we could get, if they could get behind their umpires and, and prepare them for success as well. Yeah, interesting idea. All right, last one. The Dogs should be able to play their home finals at Etihad Stadium, or it's now Marvel Stadium. Ooh. True Gee. or false? Wow. Uh, that's, that's a very interesting one. That's a very, very interesting one. Jeez. Um, I don't know which way to go on this one. To start with, there's no team that plays any ground better right now than the Bulldogs do at Marvel. Um, why not? Why not? Going going true here then. Why not? I mean, is there any sort of... 
is there any reason why they couldn't apart from attendance? I mean, I don't know. Like going back through the years, there were actually contracts in place that basically a certain number of finals had to be played at the MCG. That's true. Yeah. So I'm not sure whether those agreements are still in place. There used to be the case where even interstate teams sometimes had to play their home yeah, games at, at the MCG if they were like the lowest ranked, yeah. um, you know, winning team from the week before. Then sometimes like Sydney would be playing a home game at the MCG yeah. against a Melbourne team. So I don't know. I guess I'm a bit biased on the other side of this where just I just want to go and watch the finals at the MCG and it just seems crazy to have you know, one of the best sporting stadiums in the world and have teams that, you know, play games there throughout the season, many games, and just to let that be sitting empty. Yeah, no, that's a fair point. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, we all want to see the finals at the MCG. That's that's what we watch 44. Um, I guess I think back to when Geelong had that final at uh, Kidinia Park. I mean, if you've got a home ground and... And it's suitable. It's suitable for a final. I, mean, I just don't see why why it couldn't be the case in that first week at least. Yeah, um, I guess if you're starting from scratch, you would just say, "Yep, whoever's home ground it is, you know, you've qualified high. You get it at your home ground, even if your home ground only holds twenty thousand people." But I guess it's just this history of this is the way things have been done. So until people come out and you know make a meaningful change to that then i guess we're just going to keep going along this path of you know mcg i do agree place with where it's played i do agree with you though i think you know you need to have some games at the home of football i mean the grand final is well, going to the be grand there. finals always going to be there isn't it so yeah. like from the other point of view like you as a team you want to be able to perform in the big games at the mcg so you know for example if it was like geelong and sydney you could actually argue that playing at the MCG and winning a game there will actually serve them more than winning at the Cadinia Park ground. But True. I don't know. There's, I think it just has to be a blanket rule either way. Yeah. You either play all Victorian games at uh, the MCG or everyone gets their home games. This whole in-between thing of, oh, you might get a home game. Yeah, but yeah probably not. We can choose. Like, the only reason Geelong got... Do you remember? The only oh, reason yeah. why Geelong got that home game was because there was three other finals in Melbourne that weekend. Yeah, yeah. That's right, yeah. So, like, I think, yeah, that's really the only... In my mind, that's the only reason why you shouldn't be using the MCG if there's four finals in a weekend. Even then, you could actually spread it out and play them all at the MCG. So, I guess that's the way the AFL's always done it. And until there's a clear directive to change... I'm happy for that to continue. But again, I'm probably slightly biased as an MCC member who can go <laughs> to all those games. Of course, of course. Um, I'd like to know, if you know the answer to this, but when was the last final at Marvel Stadium? Oh, that would be that would be a while ago. Wasn't Hey, wasn't the St Kilda Bulldogs one last year at Marvel? You know what? I think it might have been. <laughs> Why was it at Marvel? Yeah. <laughs> Come to think, but I'm pretty sure it was. That's a weird one. Yeah, that's that's a very, very good point. Okay, that's well, if, if that is the case, then, you know, 
it kind of goes against what we were saying there, where you're like, all finals have to be at the MCG. It, it just at the moment, it seems to be at the AFL's discretion. And I, yeah. I don't think that's a great way of doing things. You either no. have the rule that they're all at the MCG or you have the rule that they're not. This whole picking and choosing really doesn't seem very fair. It's annoying to hear stories like this where it's, uh, yeah, headline is, oh, could the Bulldogs get a home final at Marvel? Like, why are we even having this conversation? You know, it's either one or the other. Yeah, it's it's a bit of a silly storyline. But, uh, you know, obviously as the Bulldogs, you'd want to play at Marvel. But the other side of the coin is, as we already brought up, is you'll want to play well at the MCG and set yourself up there as well. So I would like a clear directive from the AFL on this. I'd also just like to point out, Dan, that that St Kilda Bulldogs final was actually at the Gabba last year. <laughs> of course. We're yeah. all over the place. We knew it wasn't at the MCG. No. <laughs> so we're, we're doing well there, but yeah. <laughs> that would be interesting to know when the last one at Marvel yeah. would have been. Well, it wouldn't have been called Marvel last time it was used for a final. No. Maybe someone out there can uh, can uh, send an email to Footy Time. <laughs> All right, I think we'll leave it there. Uh, well, thanks for reliving that slightly traumatic game there, the Adelaide Melbourne one, Johnny. Oh, absolute pleasure. Very interesting takes as always, <laughs> and thanks to you guys for listening as well to maybe a slightly self indulgent episode, another one with Melbourne as the game of the round. But I think you'll agree that that was the game of the round, and uh, plenty of highlights. So if you guys do want to get in touch with us, uh, ideas for topics or questions you want us to raise on the show, the email is footytimemail at gmail.com. So as always, enjoy the footy and tune in again for more footy time.